I'm Alan Slade, like Tim, I'm one of the ruling elders here at Grace Covenant Presbyterian. <clears throat> and um, it didn't occur to me until right before the service when one of my boys pointed out that I have on the fancy mic here. But as Nathan Keywood said last week with Dennis and Camper not in town, we have a little more freedom. So if I break out a dance move in the middle of the sermon, that's why. So um, with books, plays, movies, often the, the title tells you who, the, uh, who the, the book or whatever is about. And so with the uh, musical Hamilton, it's ob- obviously about Alexander Hamilton. He was an immigrant to the US, a hero of the American Revolution, first treasury secretary, and a powerful politician his entire life. Hamilton was a flawed hero. His flaws included adultery, arrogance, and excessive pride. He lost political influence due to a public scandal over an affair. Unfortunately, his arrogance and pride were passed down to his son, Philip. Philip died in a duel in 1801 over Alexander's reputation. Alexander himself died in 1804 after a duel with Vice President Aaron Burr. Hamilton lived quite a life. But the musical Hamilton also looks at a critical question facing America during Alexander's lifetime. Who should lead the nation? Hamilton was key in booting out the British and creating the U.S. Constitution. He helped keep President Washington organized and successful. And he was a power player in the presidential elections of Adams and Jefferson, helping to decide the early leadership of the US. So today we're gonna be looking at Daniel chapter two, and the book of Daniel is obviously about Daniel, but it's also about who will lead empires. So, um, if you would, if you, if you have a Bible or a smartphone, um, open to Daniel 2. We'll be thinking about the entire chapter today, but I'm going to read just a, a couple of, of uh, key excerpts. So Daniel 2, starting in verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed, excuse me, for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. 
You saw, O king, and behold, or and still behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then jumping ahead to verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And then our key verse, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the, uh, the good things that you have for us in it. We ask, Lord, as we examine Daniel today, that we might uh, see your glory more fully. We might see our place in your plan of salvation more, more clearly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, today we're going to organize our, our thoughts around four questions, all starting with who. So first of all, who was King Nebuchadnezzar? Then who was Daniel? Who is God? And then who are you? So first of all, who was King Nebuchadnezzar? Um, he was a power player of the Game of Thrones. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar became king of Babylon in what is now southern Iraq. He fought with or against almost every country in the region. Nebuchadnezzar caused the fall of Jerusalem in 2 Kings 25, which actually reads like an especially bloody episode of Game of Thrones. In the time of Nebuchadnezzar, your political affiliation mattered. Assyrian, Babylonian, or Persian? Egyptian or Hebrew? The Game of Thrones in Daniel was a blood sport for nations. King Nebuchadnezzar took many lives in war. But even in peacetime, um, simply offending Nebuchadnezzar could be fatal. You could be torn limb to limb, thrown to the lions, put in a fiery furnace, or beheaded. 
Ronald Wallace, in his commentary on Daniel, writes about Nebuchadnezzar. Nothing on earth could present any real threat to his security. He had enormous power and wealth, popular, respected, feared. His word was never questioned, nor his will disputed. Truly, from, from an earthly sense, a great king. But Nebuchadnezzar was not only a powerful king, he was also a man with a troubling dream. So in chapter 2, verse 1, we read, In the second year of, of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And then, as we read earlier, he had this dream of the great image, this, this incredibly brilliant statue, just, just hurting the eyes brilliant. And, and the statue itself was frightening. It, it, what, there was something about it that just is like, you know, makes you shake in your, in your, in your bed there. And uh, that was not bad enough. The dream's terrifying finale in verse 34, the stone, which is, is mysteriously created with no human hand, comes out of apparently nowhere and destroys the statue, blows it up, and then the fragments are blown away. So why was this dream especially troubling for King Nebuchadnezzar? So besides that finale of the explosion and, and this great statue being blown away, the statue was composed of substantial materials that meant something special to King Nebuchadnezzar. Gold and silver, like, like today, were used for wealth then. They were a, a medium of exchange of money. Bronze and iron was used for weapons. Nebuchadnezzar had lots of wealth, and he had lots of weapons. His nightmare was a terrifying mix of things he valued. And then the things he valued, they're all there, they're, they're scary by themselves, and then they're destroyed in front of his very eyes. So the dream, like many dreams, was confusingly illogical. It was personally terrifying to Nebuchadnezzar, and it was on a replay loop. He kept having the same dream over and over again. No wonder Nebuchadnezzar was troubled and sleepless. Okay, but he's still king, still very powerful. And so he demands answers. So he called together his advisors and demanded that they interpret his dream. Okay, they're in the business of giving, you know, analysis and advice, so, you know, that, that makes sense. And so they responded in verse 4, Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. You know, it's like any good engineer, consultant, or whatever. Tell me your problem, and I'll help you figure out how to deal with it. But Nebuchadnezzar knew that many of his advisors were charlatans. And he wanted them to prove that they knew what they were doing before he would trust their analysis. So the king said in verse 5, If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses 
shall be laid in ruins. Okay? Consultants, engineers, financial advisors. Someone comes to you and says, solve my problem, but I'm not going to tell you what the problem is. And furthermore, if you don't solve the problem, I'm going to kill you and destroy your house, which is, you know, not just the material house you live in, but your legacy, your family line. Nebuchadnezzar was king and he could make his threats stick. And so that night, I imagine, all over the city of Babylon, entertainer, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans sadly trudged home to get their affairs in order, not necessarily expecting to live past the next day. Okay, that's Nebuchadnezzar. Who was Daniel? Um, when I was a kid, we, we, I think we actually had a song that said, Dare to be a Daniel. And uh, as a parent, I'm not so sure I want my kids to dare to be a Daniel. I don't want them kidnapped, dragged to a foreign land, constantly threatened with death. Uh, but Daniel is actually a fairly amazing person. So let's, uh, let's look at, at some of uh, Daniel's uh, most powerful attributes. First of all, he was known as a skillful advisor. When we meet Daniel in chapter 1, we find that he's already gained favor with the king's chief of eunuchs, or the chief of staff for, for Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 10 of chapter 1, we, we find out he had learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And uh, Daniel and his companions in verse 20 are referred to as 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in the kingdom. So, so he was a skillful advisor. The, the king valued Daniel and his advice. But Daniel was also a man who trusted God, trusted God at all times in the most difficult of situations. So in chapter 1, Daniel refused to defile himself with the king's food and wine, and God protected Daniel and his friends. In chapter 6, Daniel prayed to God in defiance of an order from King Darius the Mede and was thrown into the lion's den. God saved him, but Daniel's courage was not based on, yes, I know God's going to save me. He, he didn't know that. And then in chapter 2, and actually, I've read this passage many times, and I didn't notice until preparing the sermon that there's actually a key element of, of trust, a key example of trust in this story. In, in chapter 2, verse 16, Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he may show the interpretation to the king. That in and of itself was an act of courage, okay? Nebuchadnezzar was already angry. He was already threatening his advisors if they didn't you know, tell him the dream, solve the problem. So Daniel knew standing before the king, he could be killed right then and there. Okay, so that took courage. But at the time Daniel asks, for the meeting with the king, he does not know the dream or its interpretation. He, he gets the appointment, and then he goes back to his friends, 
and, and the, together they pray, and we find in verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of, of the night. So Daniel's trust in God was so great that he asked for the appointment with the king before he knew what he was going to say. That'd be like me showing up this morning and saying, hmm, what should I preach? That's scary enough for me. But Daniel was playing a much, much more dangerous game with Nebuchadnezzar. And his trust in God, of course, paid off. Um, The third characteristic of Daniel is that he was known as an interpreter of dreams and visions. And so in chapter 1, verse 17, we find out that Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. In many ways, he's like Joseph, uh, kidnapped to another land, uh, constantly in, in, in danger with his life, and yet able to, to show God's uh, goodness and God's plan for whoever he was advising by interpreting their dreams. And this is not the only time in the book of Daniel that he interpreted dreams and visions for kings. He interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 4, and then he interpreted the handwriting on the wall for King Belshazzar in in chapter 5. Okay, so what is the interpretation that Daniel gave? Okay, we've heard about the dream already. So first of all, the statue, and the statue represents four kingdoms. The head of gold represented the Babylonian empire led by Nebuchadnezzar, according to verse 37. Like gold, Babylon was glorious and wealthy, but unable to stand against stronger metals. Many of us have gold jewelry of some type or another. Um, Gold is great, it's valuable, but it's soft. You would never make a serious weapon out of gold. Verse 38, we find the chest and arms of silver represent the Medo-Persian Empire inferior to Babylon, which Daniel prophesied shall rise after you. No, it's not mentioned as the Medo-Persian Empire in, in the scriptures here, but that, that's what happened. Babylon was replaced by this Medo-Persian Empire. Silver, inferior to gold, less valuable. Still not a good metal for a weapon. Okay, a silver sword might look nice, but it's, it's not going to be much use. Third kingdom of bronze. Bronze is the first metal in in this list here that's suitable for weapons. This is the kingdom, or this is the empire of Alexander the Great, which according to verse 39, shall rule over all the earth. And if you know Alexander, you know he he started in Greece, inherited his father's army and, and kingdom, left Greece, and basically just plowed through the Middle East and kept going. And he conquered every country that he encountered, including Afghanistan, which we've had a little trouble with, uh, and he made it all the way to India, and died in his early 30s, but apparently was never conquered in battle. So truly, the empire of Alexander the Great ruled over all the earth. Then the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay represent the Roman Empire. Now, iron weapons shred not only gold and silver weapons, they do a pretty good job against bronze weapons as well. They're harder, they can be sharpened more. And so, as it says in verse 42, like iron that crushes this fourth kingdom shall break and crush all the other kingdoms. 
And so the Roman Empire took over basically the entire Mediterranean, including almost all of Alexander's empire. But the Roman Empire became a divided kingdom and eventually could not hold together like clay mixed with iron. That, that's bad metallurgy to mix clay in with your iron. And eventually the Roman Empire came apart. Now, some academics conclude that the book of Daniel had to be written hundreds of years after Daniel lived for the simple reason that these predictions are too accurate. I think a better conclusion is that God gave a prophetic dream to Nebuchadnezzar and an accurate and powerful interpretation to Daniel. Okay, so those are the four kingdoms in the statue. Then there's a fifth kingdom, the great kingdom. So the prophecies about the four kingdoms are interesting for history nerds. I know we have some out there, including me. But the really important message is in verse 44. In those days, the days of the fourth kingdom of the Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So followers of King Jesus, that's our kingdom. And there are three promises given here in Daniel 2. First of all, this, this kingdom of God shall never be destroyed. It shall stand forever. Secondly, it shall never be left to another people. It belongs to the children of the covenant, you and me. And it shall break all earthly kingdom, all earthly kingdoms into pieces and destroy them, and then they'll be blown away like the church. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream is about future history, the rise and fall of great empires, but it is mostly about God's dominion over all the earth. Okay, so that brings us to our third question. We've talked about Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Who is God? And so verse 47, Nebuchadnezzar testifies to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. And so God of gods was a big admission for Nebuchadnezzar. Like most people in the Middle East, Nebuchadnezzar believed in many gods, and, and the seemingly wise thing to do was, uh, because the local god would have extra sway over their parcel of creation, wherever you are, be attentive and respectful to whoever the local god was. So, you know, hey, you're, you're here, pray to their god, you're there, sacrifice or bow down to this other god. To say Daniel's God was God of gods is, is, is totally different. I was going to say totally different theology, but that makes it sound like it's an academic study. A totally different view of the world. There's not a bunch of little gods, each of whom sort of have their own fiefdom, sort of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know? No. There's one God, one great God who is God of gods. So like you or I would be to some idol, some false god, God is to all of them. He is over all. 
big confession by Nebuchadnezzar. Your God is God of gods. Second part of the confession, Lord of kings. And I think for Nebuchadnezzar, this was an even bigger admission. Okay, so once again, in that era, unlike us today, you have subjects, and all of us would be subjects, and then you have the king. And what the king says goes. Whatever the king wants happens. If the king wants someone to live, they live. If he wants them to be honored and rewarded, they are. If he wants them to die, they die. Okay, king, subjects. Nebuchadnezzar was not a mere king. He was a conqueror of kings. So he, he took over not only Jerusalem, he took over a lot of kingdoms. So he was a king of kings himself, he would probably say. But Nebuchadnezzar, faced with this amazing interaction through the dream and the interpretation of all, he confesses that God, Daniel's God, is Lord of kings. So, let's uh, go off here on a, to understand God a little better. Uh, let's look at some headlines about God's kingdom. And so the kingdom of God is here now. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Another headline, Jesus is in charge of everything in creation. Not most things, not religious things, not the church only. He is in charge of everything in creation. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 6, says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, one of Jesus' titles, that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. So every power, earthly king or false god, is under Jesus' total dominion. This means every nation, political philosophy, and source of political influence is under God's dominion. Now, you may say, quite reasonably, and seem to line up with my experience of the world. There's a lot going on out there that does not seem to be under God's dominion. It's not a lie. It's not, it's not like working like it should. It's broken. It's fallen. And so the writer of Hebrews acknowledges that, uh, continuing on in Hebrews 2, verse 8. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. So yeah, we, it, it's, it's, not, it's not totally played out yet. It's true the kingdom is here, but, but we don't see everything yet in total subjection. We, we don't see kings and powers and principalities um, uh, honoring Jesus. Um, but it is true, the kingdom is here. Everything is under Jesus. Okay, another headline. The beginning, middle, and end of every political leader is 
is already decreed by God. The beginning, middle, and the end of every political leader is already decreed by God. Um, in uh, verse 20 of Daniel 2, Daniel says, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And Daniel observed this. He was part of the court of a number of kings who were raised to power and then were dismissed at God's decree, at God under God's long-term plan. Set up. You do stuff as king, you're gone when God decrees it. Now, we live in a democracy. We don't have kings. I, I personally like that. Um, but one application for us is that the outcome of every election is in God's hands. Whether we like the outcome or not. The course of affairs decreed by God cannot be changed by wily politicians, crafty campaign managers, or news commentators. God's decrees can't be changed by overwhelming public outcry. And this is maybe the hardest thing to believe. His plans won't change because of a witty social media comment, whether it's by me or by you. Okay, final headline on God's kingdom. Daniel 2 says, when the kingdom of God is fully revealed on earth, all earthly kingdoms will be blown up and blown away, and not a trace of them will be found. So he is God of gods and Lord of kings indeed. So in light of God's sovereignty, and we're just looking primarily at political affairs here, but it's all domains. In light of God's sovereignty, let's, let's address the final question. Who are you? We'll look at that from, from two perspectives. Who are you? First of all, where is your identity? So some people might, say, might, might ask this question in a very small way. What are your politics? And as mentioned earlier in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, political affiliation was a matter of life and death. The same was true in the time of Hamilton. British loyalist or American revolutionary? The American Revolution Game of Thrones was deadly. And then Federalist or Democratic Republican? The Constitution replaced the bloody Game of Thrones with civil elections, but Hamilton died in a duel over political differences and arrogance and pride hubris and other things, but, but it was over political differences. But who are you is fundamentally a question of identity. Is your political affiliation your primary identity? If so, let me gently suggest a better way. Our identity should be in Christ. So Jesus tells the parable of the, the pearl merchant in Matthew 13, verse 45 and 46. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Sold everything to buy this one pearl. 
in the pearl merchant's mind, that was a great deal. This one pearl was so valuable, everything else paled in comparison. We sold everything to buy the one pearl. And for us, and the point of Jesus' parable is putting the kingdom of God first is a great deal if our identity is in Christ, if we see ourselves as subjects of King Jesus first and last, then everything else is less valuable. Everything else becomes comparatively of no value compared to the value of our identity in Christ as our members of his church. So we're confident, final headline, on this, this issue here of uh, who are you? Where's your identity? We're confident in our identity in Christ because we're confident in our Lord. So in Romans 8, 37 through 39, the Apostle Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Okay, we'll commentary here. More than King Nebuchadnezzar, more than Alexander the Great, more than all the Caesars of Rome. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angel, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay. We have time for a little tangent here. So am I saying Christians should not engage, engage in politics? Not at all. When I was a professor at the University of Delaware, I spent a year as a public service fellow. I worked uh, full-time with State Senator Andy Knox on legislation and policies to promote export trade and economic development. We accomplished good things through I'm sorry, this is so weird now, but through respectful dialogue and healthy bipartisan relationships. Ah, the good old days. I think I'm getting old. Okay, but politics are a contact sport, and that's okay. And so through contact, we can play the game of politics. We can try to influence um, matters in, in, in the uh, public square. Respectful public debate, Political campaign activity, thoughtful writing, voting, etc., are all good things. I encourage you to do them. But please know the difference between a contact sport and a blood sport. If you damage a relationship over politics, it becomes real hard to encourage that other person, their fellow believer, if the relationship has been damaged. It's hard to evangelize the lost if you put your politics first and foremost. It's hard to serve your neighbor if, if, if politics are the primary thing you are presenting to them. If you end a relationship over politics, humanly speaking, it's virtually impossible to share the truth of the gospel. 
So in any interaction with another person, I find it helpful to ask myself, what does the other person really need? And my answer is, what the other person really needs is exactly the same thing as Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander Hill. So, who are you? Second part of the question, beyond where's your identity, is do you repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So, I, I read Mark 1.15 a little earlier, but I only read the first half of it. So, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, semicolon, repent and believe in the gospel. It's the key implication Jesus has. Kingdom's here, repent and believe. Okay, let's look at our, our two uh, earthly characters, Nebuchadnezzar first. Okay. Did he repent and believe? Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar clearly seemed impressed with the Lord of Kings. But his repentance didn't last and his belief in the one true God seemed thin. So we're looking at chapter two of Daniel. Chapter four of Daniel, we see Nebuchadnezzar go on a massive ego trip. I'm great, look at all the great things I've done, see all the gardens, and far as you can see, I'm, I'm the king here. And God humbles him, and Daniel plays a key role in prophetically calling Nebuchadnezzar to repentance yet again, okay? so. Two miraculous interactions with God. That should do it, right? I mean, first miracle doesn't really stick. The second one ought to. Well, according to extra-biblical sources, later in life, Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt temples to the false gods of Marduk, Nabu, and others. When we get to heaven, I would be surprised to see Nebuchadnezzar pleasantly surprised but very surprised. How about Hamilton's repentance? And so throughout most of his life, Hamilton was like a lot of politicians then and now. Um, you know, he sort of, sort of played around with the church, but wasn't really, really committed to it. It didn't seem to really impact his uh, beliefs or his behavior very much. But after his son Philip's death, in the infamous duel of 1801, according to Ron Chernow, his biographer, Hamilton's replies to sympathy notes reflected an aching need for religious consolation. Then after his duel with Aaron Burr on his deathbed in 1804, Chernow says, Hamilton was preoccupied with spiritual matters in a way that eliminates all doubt about the sincerity of his late flowering religious interest. And then specifically, Chernow tells a story of when Reverend John Mason of the Scotch Presbyterian Church consoled the dying Hamilton. Mason said, all people have sinned. Hamilton replied, I perceive it to be so. I am a sinner. I looked to his mercy. As Mason told how Christ's blood would wash away his sins, Hamilton grasped his hand and exclaimed with great fervor, 
I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we get to heaven, will we see Alexander Hamilton there? We can never truly know another person's heart, but I hope so. So, son, who are you? Sometimes, are you really impressed by God, like King Nebuchadnezzar? Or do you act like all the kingdoms of earth are under the complete control of Jesus Christ, Lord of Kings? Do you identify largely by political party, by sexual orientation, by career, financial success, social status, or family name? Or is your identity in Christ? Do you identify primarily as a member of the kingdom of God? And the most important question of all about who you are, are you repentant of your sin and totally reliant on the blood of Christ? for your redemption. Do you repent and believe in the gospel? So, are you captivated, confused, or curious about the Lord of Kings? Are you struggling with your identity? Are you uncertain about repenting and believing in the gospel? If so, please talk to any of the ruling elders, the pastors, another God-centered man or woman, and find the time to deep dive these issues. Because your answer to the question, do you repent and believe in the gospel, defines who you are and makes all the difference in your life. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. We ask, Lord, that you might uh, draw us to you, help us to uh, repent and believe, help us to uh, live our lives as members 